0: Welcome to Amnesty International's comedy podcast series. This year, Amnesty's had exclusive backstage access at two of the biggest events on the comedy calendar, the 2014 Edinburgh Festival Fringe and the Ballam Comedy Festival in London. We'll be bringing you a series of interviews with some of the greatest stand-up comedians working today, and along with finding out about the business of laughter, we'll be chatting about life, politics and human rights. Up next, we talk to Australian comedian Felicity Ward backstage in Edinburgh. She reveals how an electric tank nearly derailed her first ever comedy gig, Why she believes you should be able to say anything you want in comedy. And we hear what Felicity would change if she was the Australian Prime Minister. Felicity Ward, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Amnesty International here at the Edinburgh Fringe in the Abattoir Bar. Mm-hmm. How are you doing?
1: Good. That is a very squeaky
0: door, isn't it? Yes, this is the problem. We are pushed for space in Edinburgh, so we have been uh, forced to be beside the Loos here in Abattoir Bar.
1: The classiest <laughs> place.
0: And also there's some roadworks going on.
1: So if, if anyone can hear any of what we're saying, it's a triumph.
0: Exactly. But we shall struggle on. So you've been performing your latest stand-up show, The Iceberg. Mm-hmm. For those who haven't seen it, I saw it last week, it was fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: It is a, uh, a stand-up comedy show, as stand-up comedy shows tend to be. And it's a very loose idea that the show is about perspective and perception and that the iceberg is the metaphor that an iceberg looks different from every single angle that you look mm. at. So um, that was the concept that I had maybe a year ago. And then I just wrote a lot of stand-up and to see if I could fit that into that as a framework.
0: And it's about uh, perspective and perception. yes. And you yourself are living in London yes. at the moment, and you reflect back on your native Australia quite a bit in your show. How do you perceive the <coughs> UK comedy scene um, compared to home?
1: Oh, I love it. That's why I moved here. It's um, while I was in Australia, and I love the comedy scene in Australia. And some of the like some of the comedy that comes out of Australia, I think, is really punching above its weight. As far as how many people there are in the country, um, how I don't want to be. Too um, demeaning to Australia, but our respect for the arts is not very high. Mm. It's it's not really perceived as a serious profession, and comedy certainly isn't. Um, Although people love comedians over there, they're like, oh, I love that guy, I love that girl, but they don't go, oh, that's a career, and this is important, and this is this can you know make some of our history. Whereas in the UK, I think people. Um, of every class and of every walk of life understand mm. that um, comedy is a really important part of British tradition and British history and is, um, <coughs> excuse me has, has created part of um, their national identity. Yeah. I don't know if that is, that's just my opinion, mm. um, but that's what it seems like to me. So in Australia, I just wanted to get better and I think that the only way I could get better is if I do more gigs and I couldn't do any more gigs than I was doing. So I just wanted to see what it was like to be surrounded by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comedians <laughs> all of the time, basically live Edinburgh Fringe, but year long yeah. um, and being able to gig all the time. And that's been my experience. And it, it's funny, I had no intention of writing about Australia or reflecting on Australia mm. um, while I was over here. And I, I, I think it's probably a bit of a, a cliche that Australians go, well, oh, Australians are like this and mm. the, the English are like this and we're different like this. But it really hasn't been – for me, that part of the show is is not about that. It's about looking back and having objectivity on the country that I am from and that I lived in for most of mm-hmm. my life. And um, I don't I, – like, I don't compare it to how Britain lives at all. Yeah. Because <coughs> we all have our own problems. Um, <laughs> and if there's one thing that British people love, it's an Australian telling them how they should be living. <laughs> so it's – it's more just that i've been away and i've been here and in that time i've been able to look at, at how the rest of the world views australia yeah. as well and what's great is that that part of the show has really been responded to well yeah i was um I was a little bit hesitant one because i've never written any political comedy before in my life um and i just got, I just got so angry about so many things that i couldn't i couldn't not make jokes about it anymore yeah, so yeah. um <laughs> excuse me i've had a cough for a bit um So it's exciting that that's translated and that's actually, yeah, people have responded to that really well over here. There's been a tiny bit of explanation just so I can get the points across Mm, and then make the jokes about it. But I really haven't spoon-fed much at all or had to change much at all to come over here. So that's exciting.
0: Yeah. Well, I I thought it was great. And I'm sure you've had a lot of comments about your poster this year. I have. Because I love it. And every time I walk past it, it's the one that jumps out at me. Um, And for the benefit of the listeners, it's you sat in a kind of – nightgown kind of thing, holding a, is it a cockatoo? It is a cockatoo. You're holding a cockatoo on one arm and then you're doing a stop sign. Yes. With the other hand. So could you tell us a little bit about your choices <laughs> behind the poster? <laughs> it's actually a lot simpler than
1: it seems. It's a Stevie Nicks poster. I um, I don't know why I was looking up Stevie Nicks. I think in my head I, I had this like funny Stevie Nicks character and I thought Stevie Nicks as a character would be very funny even though she's still alive and is a real person. <laughs> Um, just I had this little voice in my head. And so I started looking up pictures of and stories about Stevie Nicks and I found this picture and she went, inexplicably, she just went through a cockatoo phase. There's all these publicity shots <laughs> where okay. she has cockatoos, just like no reference, completely irrespective of what she's talking about in her songs. There's no... She's not an ornithologist. She just <laughs> loves cockatoos. So I th- I saw this picture and every time I saw it, it made me laugh. And it was her with a cockatoo on her arm. Not like even looking at the cockatoo, just like, yes, a cockatoo is an accessory now and it is part of my look. <laughs> <coughs> and so I thought that would be very funny. And I had the idea for the title about the same time and – um and the, the the phrase "The iceberg," and that photo just made me laugh, made me laugh every time I looked at it, so I went, "Oh, we'll just do that." and I took the photo I, we took the um, pictures while we we're in London, and uh, so the cockatoo not being native to this country was uh, or to this nation rather was not, um, was more expensive than the photographer.
0: Oh really <laughs> uh, and we're coming to the end of the festival. Uh, what have been your best Woo-hoo! and worst fringe moments Hmm.
1: Um, best and worst fringe moments. Well, it's not over yet, so hopefully there's still... (laughs) Hopefully the best is still yet to come. (laughs) Um... Trying to think.
0: I just realized the band's uh, striked up next door yeah, for the benefit of, of the listeners. Yeah, that's right. We're right next door. Lucky to the other my belly. dulcet
1: tones are so <laughs> soothing that you won't want to listen to anything else and you'll just be able to tune into my. <laughs> I can do my deep, deep magic FM voice. <laughs> Hi. I don't know if we're allowed to say radio
0: stations on this. You can say whatever you like. Right. We're all about freedom of speech. Oh, of course you are. Of course you are. <laughs>
1: um, I don't think I've had best or worst. My, I mean, look, this is really daggy, but my boyfriend got uh, came up here from London last Friday and it was wonderful to see him. We Aww. had a brilliant weekend and yeah, I've spent a lot of this year away from the UK and uh, so I've spent a lot of this time away from him and so... um. I'm, I'm, I think the best moment of Edinburgh Fringe will be when I go home and I move into a house for the first time in two years. Oh, so I'm absolutely delighted.
0: And I read a great story in The Guardian about an experience you had emceeing on a live comedy mm. stage positioned right next to a screen of the last event of the 2012 Olympics. Yeah. Uh, would you mind sharing that experience with our listeners?
1: So outdoor gigs are pretty, uh, they're hairy to begin with. Because just the pure um, physics of it is that if a group of people are in a room and they laugh, the laughter will bounce off the walls and the ceiling and you can hear it as a performer. So you know whether to keep talking about that or move very quickly on or give them pause for laughter or whatever. When you're outside, there is no roof, there is no walls, so you can't necessarily hear whether people are laughing or not. That's assuming that they're laughing at all. Um <laughs> So I got asked to do this outdoor gig. It was during the Olympics. It was the maybe the last – well, it would have been in the middle of the festival because it was the the last night of the Olympics. It was the closing ceremony uh, – sorry, just after the last event. So I think Mm. there was a decathlon on and I think that um, there was an English decathlete, I think. (laughs) Really? And so there was a massive screen and this is in Edinburgh across from – I don't know if it's the IEC Centre or something like that, but there's a little grassy patch down on Lothian Road. And uh, and so they set up a massive screen with scaffolding, but because of classic Edinburgh weather, there wasn't too many people to watch mm. it, but there was probably still 30 or 40 people and they were sat right in front of the screen and they <laughs> were like, like... <laughs> cheering on a screen. You know how there was that really... Um, uh, uncharacteristic pride that yeah, the whole yeah. UK had, maybe for the first time in history, where they were very happy with <laughs> who they were and the people that were representing them. And there was a real joy about it. Like, I've never, I've never ever seen English people so proud to be English because you get that beaten out of you pretty young over here. Um, it's very rude to be proud of yourself. Um, so it was really, that's a, that was a really joyful thing to be about um, and around. So this event is happening, and then I turn up, and then about A good 15, 20 feet off to one Mm. side was a stage and they looked like they were kind of related but no one had any idea why they were related. (laughs) So, And the audience were not sitting in front of that. They were sitting in front of the huge screen that had the Olympic event on it that they were there to see. So I turned up to MC it and they said, what we're going to do is we want you to get up and just do like 10 to 15 minutes of crowd work at the top and then we'll invite someone on. But you can't do any swearing because there's kids there and I'm, I am I, have usually have a lot of swearing. This show actually has a lot less swearing than I usually have. Um, so at this stage, this is two years ago, I'm like, uh, okay, I'll just talk to the crowd. Now the crowd were probably 30 feet from the stage. I had high heels on and they were sitting on grass. So I even when I yelled out things to them I couldn't hear them yell anything back and they hated me because they wanted to watch this decathlon event and they played it on repeat, so they didn't turn the screen off by the time I started. They just kept playing the winning moment, oh, no. and when everyone's clapping, they were even playing the footage of the journalist interviewing the winner.
0: But with the with the volume up.
1: With no volume, no. so people were like, why isn't there volume? And why is that woman talking? Why is she yelling at me on a microphone somewhere
0: else? And why is she talking about the decathlon? Why is she
1: like, get shut up and put the sound back on? So it was just that for so long, and they had me so much. And I went out to the audience. I thought, maybe if I go out and I'm talking to them and they'll look at me like, you come one step closer, mate. You come one <laughs> step closer and I will take you down. I will ankle tap you. I will do whatever it takes. And so then I started, like, there was kids there. I'm like, hey, maybe if we talk to the kids, they'll be into listening. And they're like, don't you go near my children. I'm like, no, I can't win. Oh, God. So I went back up. We introduced the band. And then I went off and I went, I can let you know that I'm not doing 10 minutes or 15 minutes of crowd work in between every." musical act what's going to happen is I'm going to say thank you very much to the band and say there'll be another band on in five to ten minutes that's how this is going to work I said this is not me being uh, I'm not trying to get more bang for my buck or work less for the amount of money that I'm being paid they hate me I will drive people away if you get me up and so I got up and I did that and then um then by the third I was doing like five minutes at the top of each of the acts by the third time I got up they were like there was a lot more people and they were a bit more all right, you've earned it now. Like, I'm like, well, where was that an hour and a half ago when you hated me? Um, and I don't know. They may have stopped playing the decathlon on <laughs> by that stage. But the, the event was probably an hour and a half or two hours. And I was texting my manager in between going, this is the worst thing I've ever done. Right? And they're like, you're nearly there, babe. You're nearly there.
0: And does it remain as the, one of the, the hardest things you've had to it's go It's one through? of
1: the most horrible gigs ge- because also it's mid-afternoon. So it's not like, oh, it's dark. I can't see them. I've got lights in my eyes. Mm. It is broad daylight. I can see every disappointed eyeball, <laughs> crinkle, every sneer, every turned up nose.
0: <laughs> but things, things are a lot better now, especially things here Things are the a lot better.
1: Fringe. I even did an outdoor gig for the Commonwealth Games, actually, and it was awesome. Did so you? I'm like, maybe things do
0: improve. Nailed it. And going back to the start of your career, before you got on the comedy scene, I read that you wanted to be a serious actor. Yeah, uh, always. So what made you try comedy?
1: Oh, it was a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> I, well, I was actually a tour manager and a stage manager for two years. Between... Oh, yeah. um, I've had a, it's my chequered past. <laughs> Dim the lights, get a cigar. Uh, I always wanted to do acting. And I think that I always just had, like... Um, I always had people that lived in my head. So I was always doing voices and I, didn't, I still do them. I, I'm not well. Um, mm. <laughs> so I always, like when I was a kid, and this is not uncommon either, I was always the class idiot and I always put on plays and I was like always asking my teacher if I could read a monologue that I'd written. I was a full loser. <laughs> and, but acting is what I really love doing. I, yeah. loved, I loved the idea of acting and I loved the world of it. And... Um, Oh, I think I just said the world of it. I hate myself. Uh, that was proper actor talk. See, it still seeps out every now and again when I just start speaking from my diaphragm, you know, just talking about the craft. And um, uh, <coughs> I went to a performing arts school. I intended to go to drama school. <laughs> Not getting past the first round of any drama school put an end to that pretty quickly. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years and then I was a waitress for a couple of years and did some uh, some amateur theatre and then ended up getting into sketch comedy by auditioning for a university review, of which I did not attend. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a friend who was directing, he's like, yeah, we'd love to have you in the cast. I'm like, I don't go to uni. They're like, don't worry about it. <laughs> so I did that, and then strangely, within 12 months of doing that university review, I somehow got involved with some people that <laughs> I sound like I'm about to turn into a drug dealer. I'm not. <laughs> um, I got involved with some tough... Anyway... Uh, We did. I got involved in this best of sketch show, and then that got taken down to Melbourne Comedy Festival, and then that got picked up for a a development deal, and then we just wrote for a couple of months, and then we handed in the pilot, and then on the by the Monday we had a TV series. So I did a yeah, like I I'd been trying to be an actor my entire life and never been paid, and then within a year of trying sketch for the first time, I had a TV show a year later. So that was that was pretty full on. Um, and I didn't know anything and I didn't, I didn't know how to write or anything like that. So that was a very hard learning curve. Very steep. Um, and then at the end of that, I wasn't really an actor. And there's like, you can be a comic actress in the UK. Like there is a career mm. for that. Yeah. We don't really make enough comedy for that to be a viable career path. So uh, one of the comedians who was on the show, Heath Franklin, who does a character called Chopper, they were going to do a national tour of him. And they needed a stage manager and a production manager. And our head writer, who then became the producer of that show, said, do you want to do that? I'm like, yep, all right. I can type. Thinking typing is what is going to get me. (laughs) So we did a 90-day national sellout tour. I was like... Operating a computer and like calling the lights and sending through tech sheets and doing the tech I never done any <laughs> of this before. So I was bullshitting in a way that I had never. They're that's like, right to they're like, what do you need? I'm like, I need a, a mini jack. They're like, a 3.5 mil. I'm like, yep, that's what I need, <laughs> a 3.5 mil. And so <laughs> that's sort of how I learned about, yeah. um, you know, the production side of things, and. People had, this is a boring story, I'm sorry, this is so sorry, long. Oh, God, it. even I'm boring myself. Um, <laughs> and that's rare because I find me very interesting. Uh, so uh, people kept asking me, you know, oh, when are you going to get back into it? I'm like, and it was really horrible because I didn't, I, I'd stopped drinking and I'd left my fiancé and I'd moved back in with my mum and my life was <laughs> soaring. And so I, d- I felt really bad about myself and I didn't know what I was. Mm. And then there's a, a, a woman called Ali McGregor. She has a show, actually, I think, over at Assembly this uh, year, Assembly Gardens. Uh, she does the Ali McGregor late-night variety, night-night. And I had somehow got onto a TV, a panel show in Australia called Spics and Specs, which is sort of like your never mind the Buzzcocks. Yeah. It's not as racist as it sounds. It's a BG <laughs> song, Spicks and Specs. And so I had got on to that and I'd done a couple of those and again I, that, like they didn't really know how to introduce me because I this, the show hadn't been on TV for two years and I wasn't a comedian but it was the first time that I went oh maybe I can just be funny just when I'm talking hmm. and I don't have to be a character and then she said hey if you want to um, do something during Melbourne Comedy Festival because she's married to Adam Hills who was the host, oh, of Spix okay. and Spix, <laughs> host of Last Leg over here um, and also a very generous kind wonderful hilarious man. Uh, she said, if you want to come on to my variety show, you can do something during the comedy festival. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that'd be great. And then never got back to her. And then two weeks into it, she was like, do you still want it?" I'm like, yeah, yeah, I really want to. And then on the last week, she said, we only have one slot on the last night. Um, so you can either take that, otherwise we don't have anything. And I went, okay, yeah, yeah. So I locked myself in and I'd seen these toy tanks that were really stupid and they gave you an electric shock. Like you had to chase <laughs> each other and one tank would shoot the other one. Uh, okay. And um, so I thought it would be funny if I bought these tanks and I got someone out of the audience and asked them trivia questions. And if they <laughs> got it wrong, I would shoot them and give them electric <laughs> shock. And then if I got it wrong, uh, they got it right, they could shoot me. So I ordered them. They arrived on the Friday <laughs> in the afternoon and then I was on, a like, a work call because I was still a tour manager at the time. I'm, like, you know, organising a thousand-seater in another state. And, um, oh, thank God the, there's a gospel choir outside. Wonderful.
0: Just what we needed.
1: It's really lifting my spirits. This is the good end of the story. And, uh, woo! Um, it's very hard for me to fight percussion. Uh, so... You should just listen to them. That's probably more interesting. That's just
0: Edinburgh for you, isn't Mm. it? It's just... Everything's going on everywhere. All right, I'll focus. I'll focus. (laughs) The Tank.
1: Come on, guys. I think that's the Soweto Gospel Choir. They're awesome.
0: They just pass through, don't they? I think, on their way to. Sometimes. Sometimes
1: they stay here and they do some singing and dancing. Oh, no, they sound like they're walking away. They're on route. Okay, cool. So... (laughs) The tanks arrived, the postman delivered them on the, in the afternoon, I got a buzz in my apartment, I said just bring them up and then I was on this phone call for 20 minutes and then there was no knock or anything, I went oh he must have just left them down in the lobby, went down there and they were gone. That someone had stolen the tanks, I don't know if the post office stole them, I thought, don't know if he wanted them for his daughter, I don't know if someone in the building stole them, I have no idea <laughs> this day. But the post closes on the weekend, there's no more post. So on the Sunday I had to do 12 minutes of something, 12 minutes, not five minutes, so my first stand-up comedy spot was 12 minutes. And fortunately, from the days that I did a sketch show, I kept a notebook. So I was just trawling through it, just going, I don't know, is that a joke? Is that funny? I don't know. And so I just put anything together and just like shoehorned 12 minutes together. And I was like ready to commit suicide before I went on stage going, this is the worst idea I've ever had. I'm not saying that to be, exa- like, I'm not exaggerating. I yeah. was literally ready to walk into the Yarra. Afterwards, which is a river, sorry. <laughs> and then I did it, and then had like the moment, just had the just had the light bulb moment. And went, oh, this is it. This is all I ever want to do for the rest of my life. Oh wow! And, and you
0: stormed it without the use of electric shocks. And without, I actually
1: <laughs> ended up using them in my first show. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, in Edinburgh too. <laughs> so yeah, the, the tanks. Um, yeah, the the tanks. They saw the light of day,
0: unfortunately. <laughs> did that go down? Did the tanks work? Sometimes.
1: <laughs> sometimes they did not work at all i was pretty weird when i first started out and the things that i told people they were like you should say that because i didn't know what was funny i would just tell stories from my childhood and people like are you talking about that on stage i'm like no they're like you should so i would tell them and they weren't weird to me because i've always known those stories because that's mm. my life so but some people found them quite strange and they're like i don't know if that's that funny i think that's just a bit sad mm. And i like, I don't know how to make this funnier. So that that, that hopefully that has happened over time. Right. <laughs> over six years, I hope that has happened.
0: Well, I was just about to say, your shows keep getting better and better. Um, do you feel a lot of pressure to keep up that level of success?
1: Yeah, every show is... or well, not success, just on myself. Every show is like, well, this is going to be the Fall from Grace show. This is the show where they went, oh, she was doing so well. Oh, I thought she was better than this. That's what I... Th- I this one in particular, because um, I had writer's block for months, and I was... Just so many days staring at a computer screen, like just going there's or a blank piece of paper, just going there's nothing, There's and I write something and go you're a piece of shit Felicity, <laughs> that's not a joke, that's just words, <laughs> just words next to each other. So, um, yeah, this one was very hard, and this is the least personal show that I've done. This is the most observational show that I've done, and it's just mostly stand up all the hmm. way through. Um, so that's sort of a departure from what I've done in previous years. Um, but it's exciting when it's good. It's like the best thing I've ever done. I think mm. that's how it feels, anyway. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, <laughs> that might not be the case for other people.
0: <laughs> no, we, well, we we definitely enjoyed it. But I, I I would have loved to have seen the tanks. <laughs> they
1: are. I don't think they're on. I don't think they're online anywhere. We did record a um, we recorded a a, a version of the show. We filmed it, but um, at the time we hadn't realised that it wasn't an expensive camera or anything but there was LED lights on the um, stage facing the camera and so they just strobed the whole thing. Oh really? Yeah, (laughs) so that did not happen.
0: (laughs) Talking of your shows, you do deal with a lot of um, serious issues and you speak about Australia's Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, Mm -hmm. who has uh, definitely made some highly questionable statements about Mm -hmm. women. Um, I was surprised, for the benefit of listeners, I was surprised to read that he actually said, uh, the right of women to withhold sex needs to be moderated.
1: Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. He's just, um, he's an incredible human being.
0: Do you want to make people think when they come to your shows? And do you think comedy can change anything?
1: Yeah, I don't intend for people to think when they come to my show. I want them to laugh. But if they do think, that's great. And I think that humour is a, uh, a great way to convey a serious idea. Someone, I, I don't know whose discussion this was, it certainly wasn't mine, but someone was telling me about how rock and roll used to be quite a voice and a voice piece for... Um, for political Mm. uh, arguments or a political platform. And comedy can do that and does do that, I think, to a certain extent, especially political comedians. And right now, because uh, some comedians are so uh, commercially accessible that they, they, they have the platform to... I don't know if they have the platform to change minds. Maybe we all have the platform to change minds. I don't. I don't know. But I like that people listening to what I'm saying about something that is genuinely happening and laughing about that, but also being educated about that. That that's a that's a wonderful byproduct. I think mm. that part of the show, and it's, I don't. It, the great thing is it's not opinion. You know, like I'm quoting Tony Abbott yep. when I'm talking, and these are quotes from. Over, this, is, this is something that has been consistent in the way that he speaks about women. I, I think it was a <coughs> G20 summit. I might, I might be getting that wrong. But he, um, it was a photo opportunity and there's, there's footage of him going, uh, Graham, come over here. And he names every single male delegate going, come on, we've got to come over the photo. And then he goes, where are the ladies? Get the ladies over here come on where are the ladies and cannot name a single woman that is a part of this conference and it is just extraordinary mm. it's extraordinary and we voted for him
0: sorry it's uh it does yeah <laughs> it, well it's I think it's definitely just by talking about it you're raising awareness and I've, I've since I've like learned a lot more about Tony Abbott mm. so I think it yeah, it is raising awareness. Yeah. I think it's an important thing to talk about.
1: Yeah, and that you know that's that's just I also talk about asylum seekers in the show, and uh, that has been that is not just Tony Abbott, that was Kevin Rudd before him, and that was Julie Gillard before uh, before oh, him. Oh, how
0: they're described as boat people.
1: Yeah, so so the phrase boat people has been around for quite a few years, and illegal immigrants, um, and that's perpetuated by certain hmm. newspapers in Australia, and the government used that. So Tony Abbott does use that. He's actually, there's a, a sign that he uh, that he made up and it said number of illegal immigrants since lib- the, since the Liberals got into government. He's liberal, ironically, mm. big L. And it's got a big zero. And they're standing there with thumbs up and that's when he just, I think, when he just became PM. Yeah. And that's just, it's just not illegal to sex
0: asylum in yeah. Australia. It's not illegal to sex asylum in Australia. It's not illegal to sex asylum in Australia. <laughs> and as Amnesty International, we mm. defend uh, freedom of expression. Is there anything you wouldn't joke about?
1: I don't know. I don't think there's any... There's some things that I just can't make funny, and so I won't, I won't touch them. I don't usually joke where the victim is the, um, the butt of the joke. Mm. That's, well, that's what I don't make jokes about. Uh, I don't think anyway, unless the victim is me. But, you know, like, there's, there's obviously the... the big rape debate that's been going on mm. for a couple of years about, um, you know, whether people can make jokes about um, about rape and it, it's it's just it, I was talking to someone the other day and it's, isn't there better things to write jokes about mm. than rape victims? Like make jokes about the culture of rape or make jokes about, but you know also do whatever you want, yeah. do whatever you want Adrian Truscott has a, has a great show, I'm not sure if you've seen it yeah it's called Adrian Truscott's Asking For It A mm. One Woman Rape About Comedy and it's an incredible show. But when she was discussing it, she was saying, I'm not saying that no one can make jokes about rape. Anyone can joke about whatever they want. But if you make a joke that isn't good, you have to be prepared to to be called on it, to say that's mm. a bad joke. What you've written isn't funny. I disagree with that, which is the nature of art and comedy is that people have an opinion about it and that's how it succeeds or fails yeah. or or breathes or whatever. And, um, yeah, I think that I'm the same. You, you make jokes about whatever you want. But I also reserve the right to uh, think it's disgusting, be offended, uh, not like it. You know, as an audience and as a as a comedian, mm. I have I have those rights as well. So that's how I feel about freedom of speech. You do whatever you like, but I, I'll probably have an <laughs> I'll probably have an opinion about it anyway. Let's face it, <laughs> I'm pretty opinionated.
0: And related to that question, are there any jokes you wish you hadn't told?
1: Yeah, there is. There's, there's a, this is a stupid one. This isn't like a oh that's really bad, but. Um, there's, uh, I'm, I used to make a joke about a, like a, a little ginger girl putting up a, a poster of a cat and it said lost cat and the joke was it's so sad she lost her only friend and it was like a joke about gingers and this is years ago, years and years ago and when I told it people laughed, I'm like this is such a lame joke like mm. making fun of people with red hair one, I don't think there's anything funny about red hair. If anything, I find them incredibly attractive. People, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I think people with ginger hair are really hot. But um, uh, it was just—it's just like a—it's just cheap. It's just so they're the jokes that I don't. I wish that mm. I hadn't made as cheap jokes. But also, I didn't. Um, the more, it's, strangely, the more I do comedy, the more sensitive I become to. Uh, to cultural insensitivity and to uh, racial insensitivity and to gender insensitivity. Words that I thought were fine a couple of years ago are not fine anymore. Mm. And I'm from a very small town in Australia. I'm not university educated, uh, even though I've done the reviews. Um, so I, uh, it's it's been a very a big learning process for me too. And actually, in my first year, I did this story about and it's a true story, and it's not a story that I'm proud of. But there was comeuppance at the end. But I was doing a play when I was 16 or 17, and I was playing a boy with um, cerebral palsy. And I was an actor, so I took it very seriously. It wasn't I wasn't doing like a, it wasn't a caricature of someone with hmm. cerebral palsy. I took it very very seriously. But one afternoon, I lived basically an hour and a half one way from that's where I went to school, and. One day I was walking back to the train. My mum was going to be waiting at the other end. This is before I had before mobile phones because I'm a dinosaur and uh, I had to get this train I was going to miss it. And I did something horrible and I pretended to have cerebral palsy so I could get through the gates and the guard wouldn't ask me. And every time I told this in the first show and every time people went, oh, my God, that's awful. I'm like, I know it's awful. (laughs) I know it's awful. But the comeuppance of that was... There was a shock jock in Australia that saw the show, asked me to do work experience. I did do work experience. That day, the Prime Minister at the time, John Howard, came in and, uh, and he said, do a bit of the show for him. Do a bit of... Show John Howard what you do in the show. So in front of the Prime Minister, I had to pretend to have cerebral palsy. Wow. So in about week three, and I think that is an incredible comeuppance. Mm. I think that it is just like, well, this is what you get, mate. If you want to peel it out, then this is something that you're going to have to do at all times. Now, I did that in my first show and I remember speaking to Brendan Burns, who's a a wonderful comedian, and um, I found out that I had someone in a wheelchair in that night and it was week three or week four of the Edinburgh Fringe. I was just exhausted and I went, I don't know if I can emotionally be confident enough in this story just in case i don't want to mm. i don't want to offend someone and he said no that's absolute bullshit i went what and he goes you tell if you have the nerve to tell a joke you have to be able to tell that joke in every single club mm. in every single you can't cater it because that person is in or someone of that particular description yeah. is in and he was absolutely right and then that's been that's been my mantra from now on you know i can defend I think that I can defend every joke that I've written. Especially, yeah. uh, definitely in the last three years, I can definitely defend everything. And if people are offended by it, I can explain where I'm coming from and that it's about satirisation or that it's from personal mm-hmm. experience and explain that I'm the victim and that is the intention there. I don't tell that story anymore. I am still I still think that it probably makes people feel more uncomfortable than it is funny, although I do think it's a funny story.
0: Now we, we've spoken to a lot of comedians on the same subject and they've... They're, they're conscious of not punching down and very much punching mm. up and mm-hmm. targeting the powerful.
1: Actually, that was it. So I had this bit last year in um, a show here, and it was on. It was like this bit about junkies, and I am fascinated by junkies. And I grew up in a really a pretty high density area um, where there were heroin addicts, and and I, I sort of have some personal experience with it, and. I find them I find them fascinating, hmm. or it has been in the past. And I think in Australia, I don't know if it's because people know that the area that I'm from is uh, a little bit rough, but it never occurred to me that what I was saying was punching down. Never occurred to me. And then I came over here and I remember doing a preview of the show and I had some um, comedian mates go, it feels a bit like you're punching down. And I went, really? And it never occurred to me. And then one or two other people... Uh, said it, and especially in um, in Scotland too, because there's a big problem here. And I have problems with alcohol; like I've had problems with alcoholism in the past. Mm. I don't drink anymore for that reason. So, in my head, I was always doing it as an ally, and then I just realised I, I I don't I didn't think I couldn't talk my way out of it. I just went no, this is this is there's too many people saying that you are punching down. Mm. So just stop doing the material. I just I won't do it anymore, and um I, I couldn't make it. Funny enough, and insightful enough, and offer something that bolstered them as a people, Mm. um, for me to be talking about them without just seeming incredibly privileged on stage, so um, without any sense of irony. So Mm. I, yeah, I I stopped doing that. That actually, I felt terrible about that, and I, I, I even had a song about it that was at the end of the show. Um, And again, I just thought it was funny. And looking back at it, I'm like, it's it's not funny, man. Mm. It's not funny anymore.
0: Well, at least you you know, are aware of it. I think a lot of comedians will hide behind the shield of irony. Mm. Um, you know. Yeah,
1: I mean, at least I'm aware of it. But also, you know, if someone said something really sexist, I'd probably be right on top of them straight away. I, so I, I also accept that people, if, if people jump down my throat about that, then I probably mm. deserved it. And that it's only from people pointing it out that I went, oh, yeah, I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah.
0: Now, the term human rights comes under criticism from certain tabloids, and the Conservatives have even talked about scrapping the Human Rights Act Hmm. at the next election. What do human rights mean to you?
1: Well, if I could just uh, refer this back to Australia, just briefly. George Brandis, who I think is the Governor General, that might be the wrong. Anyway, George Brandis tried to implement, uh, tried to repeal a law that stopped racial vilification in Australia he even said everyone has the right to be a bigot that is the quote um, so I think language is very powerful and I don't, And that, that's since been scrapped they're, they're, they're going to leave that as is I think it's 18C uh, right. part of the Racial Discrimination Act I don't know why I, I can remember <laughs> like, really specific things that are helpful and then other things like what George Brandis' role actually is
0: <laughs> I can't remember
1: so, what, so the question is what does human rights mm. mean to me I don't know. I mean, I am sometimes without objectivity that I believe in just blind humanity, that I believe that that should be supported and should be a priority and should be be our foremost concern is how other people are being treated. I think that we should always look at our most vulnerable and see how Mm. they're being affected and that should be a priority because Trickle down systems don't work. That has never worked historically. Yeah. That has never worked, and so there needs to be a, a, a new look at that. But uh, I t- look—I just the idea of human rights. It, like it just—I feel so overwhelmed with sadness just even talking about it because it's so big, and we've just treated people so poorly for so long mm. that it is completely acceptable. Even things like when you just said raising awareness. In my head, I rolled my eyes because how much awareness do we have to raise like we just keep raising awareness and it doesn't seem to change anything and I'm like a mental health advocate I'm um, I live with um, anxiety and I've had uh, bouts of depression in the past and so I, I I speak about about that as often as I can publicly but you know hearing the phrase we've got to," you know we've got to get rid of stigma if I hear the word stigma again like as soon as I hear mm. the word stigma I just tune out and like bored don't care about stigma. Don't want to hear about <laughs> the word stigma. Obviously, I care about the concept of stigma, yeah. and obviously, I want people to be more understanding about human rights or mental health awareness. But when you hear the word human rights, because of the attrition of of like the the attrition effort of trying to change our actions and opinions towards human rights, with sometimes little to no effect, mm. you just got. You just, I just categorise it. I just pigeonhole it. Go, oh, hum, human rights, they're just words. That's just a big umbrella that we'll never be able to fix. Even yeah. though I'm taking action to try and fix it myself, I also understand um, the fatigue yeah. of it. Does that make sense? Yes. I don't no, know I if I've just yeah. rambled, yeah. but it's it's very difficult. And I, you know, I, I I donate money where I can, and I sign things where I can, and I speak publicly, as I said, where I can about things. Um, But I also understand people that just go, this is too big for me. Like, Mm. this is, I can't take a bite-sized chunk of this enormous problem and feel like I'm making any effect. Mm. Even though if we all changed at the same time, then we would. But it's very difficult to Mm. coordinate six billion people to think differently and to act differently. Exactly. Especially when it's not going to benefit everyone.
0: Mm. And on a lighter note. Yes. uh, What's the ultimate goal with your career?
1: I have no ultimate goals anymore because when I was acting all I wanted to do was be a professional actor. That was it and I strangled my career and I strangled my opportunities because I was so desperate to be this thing and then um, I had, I had, you know, I'm sort of one of those people that had a bit of a life-changing moment and that whole year when I stopped drinking and left my partner and moved back in with my mum, everything had to change including the way that I think about my creativity and I think about my life and I think about my job although I still would love to be more successful than I am I don't have any goals anymore I just my idea of life is that I'll put my foot out and there will be ground to catch Mm. me and I just have to keep following my instincts and trust that they're the right ones and every time I've taken a risk on my instincts it's always paid off moving to London I mean I don't have heaps of work here but I just trust that it it will be the right thing to do because instinctively it felt like the right thing to do Mm. so um
0: Happy to go with the flow and see where life takes you. Yeah,
1: yeah. It, it hasn't steered me in the, in the last seven and a half years since all of that happened. It hasn't steered me in the wrong direction. And yeah. even if it felt like the wrong direction at the time, I've looked back and seen how that's been beneficial or it's been a lesson. Um, yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm one of those dirty, spiritual, hippie people <laughs> that uh, that trust that there's something looking out for me.
0: And final question, Felicity. Uh, and if you were Prime Minister either here oh, or in Australia... What's the first change you'd make?
1: Whoa, that is pretty full on. (laughs) Look, if I was in Australia, I think what I would do is um, put a six-month limit on detention centres in Australia and also um, the detention centres that we're operating out of um, Manus Island and Nauru and Christmas Mm. Island and say that as a government we have six months to come up with a solution. And, And then that is what we would work on for six months and figure out how we get such a small proportion of people into the community in Australia mm. and make it worthwhile you know you just you just make it work in the 70s we had a massive influx of vietnamese refugees everything's fine we have a lot of incredible mm. vietnamese food and people and everything's fine nothing's there's really no problem we have 23 million people in australia we are the sixth biggest country in the world for, and for some reason we are perfectly designed for renewable energies and yet mm. we're not investing in those in a way. We're, we are sunshine and wind. Like <laughs> we can sort it out, guys. <laughs> so they are probably the, the, the focuses. Yes. They would be the immediate focuses. Yeah. Um, for me as Prime Minister.
0: Well, Felicity, it has been fascinating talking to you and thank you so much for putting up with probably one of the noisiest interviews we've had. Oh, it's not me that has to listen to it, it's the
1: people, people at home.
0: But thank you so much, it's been fascinating. Thanks and very much. I'll see Thanks you for here having... next year.
1: Indeed, I'm sure I will be.
0: If you're interested in learning more about human rights or joining Amnesty International, then please go to our website, amnesty.org.uk. And make sure you don't miss our next episode. Here's a sneak peek.
1: Who gives a shit?
0: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Who
1: gives a shit what I'm thinking? And then I'd stop. It stops me at that moment. Yeah, and it hasn't stopped a lot of other people at that moment, much to their detriment.